Open your copy of God's Word this morning to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, if you're unfamiliar with 2 Peter, it's towards the end of your Bible, towards the end of the Scriptures. Peter's second letter this morning. As you turn there, I wonder, have you ever been given an important position or, or a scholarship, perhaps, or maybe you... Uh, were given the opportunity to, to play collegiate sports or something that you knew was coming up that you anticipated. Maybe you were awarded a, a new position at work, a promotion that you had, you had wanted for a long time and you knew that was coming up. Or, or maybe you had accepted a, a, were accepted into a prestigious program of study, maybe something for a summer or something overseas in, in, in Europe or something, some kind of study program that you really had longed for. Do you, do you remember what that was like? You remember the, the excitement, the, the anticipation of, of knowing what was coming? You were, you were filled with, with great anticipation, most likely. What would it be like? What, what will I do? You, you had some, some sense of what it might be like, but you didn't know exactly what it would be like. But regardless, in the midst, you begin readying yourself. You begin making preparations. Maybe you, you started really working on your jump shot or, or you ran extra miles. You did extra strength. Maybe you studied extra material and you, you went and read extra books to get ready and to, to be well-versed in the area of study or in the, the, the area of calling for that profession. You acquired the things you would need for your dorm. You acquired everything to ready yourself. What we know of this, what we see of this is this, is that the knowledge of future realities affect the way we live today. The knowledge of future realities affects the way we live today. And that's exactly what Peter writes here in 2 Peter chapter 3, where we're looking today, is he's writing and he's writing concerned about our living out of our faith. And he, he does so exhorting the believers to pursue Christian virtues, but he warns them of scoffers that would come. In our text today, in, in chapter 3, he calls us to, to live like Christ. Live like Christ. And in anticipation of the return of Christ, all the more, he says we should pursue holiness and, and godliness, that we would see the end, we would see the return of Christ, and in anticipation of that, it would affect the way that we live we want to look this morning at, at chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and we're not going to be able to cover everything in this passage. We don't have time to dig all the way through it, but I think contextually, I want us to look through the first 10 verses, and we'll kind of dig in to verse 11 through 13 this morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth are now, or that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord or coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's quickly look at the first ten verses so we understand what's going on in the passage. We, we see here that, that Peter's goal is to stir up their mind. Christianity is indeed a, a, a faith-based religion. Everything we do, everything that we are is anchored in our faith in Christ alone. But this is not some kind of mindless faith. It's not this, leap, this blind leap into the dark. It is a, a faith that is based on the reality of who God is and what He has done and what He's revealed in Scripture. And so Peter says, I want to stir up your minds. I'm not seeking to stir up your emotions. I want to stir up your thinking and your minds. How does he do that? By way of reminder. And what does he remind them of? He says to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. See, Peter was aware of the attacks of scoffers. And he knew that in the midst of those attacks, we have to look back on what we know and be reminded of the truth of God's Word. And so he brings them back to think about the truth of God's Word. Now, scoffers were a reality then, and Peter warned about them. Scoffers are a reality now. They've always been around. In fact, in, in 1828, Noah Webster, in his dictionary, this is how he defined a scoffer. Is this one, it means to scoff at religion and sacred things. And he says it is evidence of extreme weakness and folly, as well as of wickedness. Isn't that interesting, the way that Noah Webster describes scoffing? And note here in what Peter says, what drives the scoffer? What is it that they're, what they're driven by? It's their own sinful desires. They're following their own sinful desires. We read in, in Psalm 1, our hearing of the word this morning that, that Mike read, we, we heard the description, the comparison of the, the righteous or the godly versus the unrighteous or the ungodly. And the, the righteous is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He does not sit and dwell with them, commune with, commune with them and sit under their authority. We would understand if you read Proverbs, you come across Proverbs 9, 7, 8, 13, 1, they speak of the, the hard-heartedness and the folly of scoffers. Scoffers have been around. 
right? They're here today. Well, what will scoffers do and say? According to, to Peter here, they cast doubt upon the faithfulness of God to keep his promise. They, they presume that, that the patience of God is not patience, but it's his inability, and they call question upon him. Oh, he, he, everything's continuing as it was. It's just continuing as it was. That just means that, that God's not here. What are you looking for his coming for? You're wasting your time. They're seeking to cast doubt upon your faith. We hear the same things today, don't we? Why are you wasting your time? Why would you come and gather and sit under the Word? Why would you do those? But we need to understand the fact that Peter points out here. He says that scoffers deliberately overlook this fact. They are deliberately overlooking this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And then he says, and by means of that same word, that same water, God then flooded the earth and punished the earth. But scoffers, according to Peter, are deliberately overlooking that fact. They're deliberately ignoring, they're actively denying, overlooking, suppressing what is in front of their eyes. It's the same thing that Paul wrote about. You remember Romans 1.18? Paul starts his, his case and his, his theology in Romans. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. It is an active case against God. But he, Paul says, listen, they are without excuse because God has made himself known through creation. Scoffers deliberately overlooking the fact. But Peter calls us back in verses 5 to 7 to the truth, doesn't he? He calls us back to remember, to recall the Word of God. He first says, remember that, that God created all things. And how did He create all things? He created all things by the power of His spoken Word. The psalmist rejoiced in this. The psalmist worshiped God for this in Psalm 33, 6. He says, by the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. They rejoiced, he rejoiced in the creative power of God to speak all things into existence. And Peter is calling them back to remember that. But this same God who spoke all things into existence in due time, the sinfulness of man, the rebellion of man, punished and judged mankind with the flood. This came about in God's timing, in God's way, in God's manner, according to God's plan. The scriptures talk about in Luke as people were just going about their merry way, going about doing their thing. God's judgment was upon them and coming. And what we need to remember is that the God who is faithful to act in the past is the God who has promised to act in the future. Peter was reminding the people of that, and we need to be mindful of that as well. We come down to verses 8 to 9. Verse 8 to 9 is, is a, rem a reminder that that God's delay in returning is, is not due to his kind of inability to carry out his plan, but it's due to his patience, his goodness, his kindness towards those who he would long to see repent. He says, again, a similar phrase in this passage, do not overlook this one fact. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. But He is patient. And who's He patient to? He's patient toward you. 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The longing of the Lord, the desire of the Lord, that all would reach repentance. And he says, he describes here, and we don't have time, there's a lot here that we could pack in. There's a lot of theology in these two verses, right? Some of you are going, oh, I want to talk about that. We can talk about it later. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. That toward you is important in this particular passage. It defines who is Peter writing to. He's writing to the believers. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Scholars have different opinions on what exactly this means and what exactly the all means. There's all kind of theological debate there. But what we know for sure and the truth that we need to understand and come away with this morning and what we're looking at is that God's patience is not due to his inability or his lack of of being able to carry out his plan. God's patience is revealing his kindness toward you. He's revealing that he is a gracious and a good and a mighty God. It brings us into verse 10. A reminder that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come upon us when we least expect it. And in this moment, the former things will pass away. It should remind you, if you've been here, it should remind you of our, our sermon from Revelation 21 where the, the former things pass away and here we read again that they will be burnt up, they will be dissolved. And Peter's concern is what? That we would be ready that we would be ready. Now, I want to just pause for a moment before we move on. Because the call that we're going to hear from Peter is that the sort of people we ought to be in light of the knowledge that Christ will return, the type of people we ought to be is godly and holy. But I want to pause for a moment because it's very important that you cannot be godly or holy outside of the transforming, life-giving work of Christ in you. And so here, when we think about the desire that Peter has for us to be ready, the first way to be ready is to follow Jesus Christ. It's to come to faith in Him. And so right away, before we move on, I want to make it very clear that if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you can't be holy enough. You can't be godly enough. You can't be like Christ in such a way that it would save you. Salvation is through Christ alone. It's by God's grace alone, through faith alone. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you achieve. You can't achieve enough. You can't accomplish enough. But Christ has accomplished it. Christ has made a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Remember, we talked about a couple weeks ago. And so right here in this moment, I would just call you unbelievers to trust in Christ, to repent of your sins, to turn from your sins and trust Christ in faith today. It is in so doing that you're able to strive for holiness and godliness as we've called, or as we called to do. Let's look for the remainder of our time at verses 11 to 13. I'm sorry to go through all that so quickly. 11 to 13, particularly 11. We've been talking about heaven. 
We've described what Scripture reveals about heaven. We've described the, the things we know for certain, the things that, that God has revealed to us. Some of them we just have to take and, and go, okay, this is what God re- has revealed, and we're taking that on faith. We don't know exactly all the details, but, but we've considered that. But in light of that, last week we talked about the hope that that gives us. This week we want to look at the type of life we should live in light of heaven considering the reality that, that we know what awaits us as believers. We know what the end holds. Peter's exhortation in verses 1 to 10, we just heard that he's stirring them up to a sincere mind. He's reminding them the truth of God's word to not be unsettled by scoffers, to remember the faithfulness and the power of God. And why? Why? Because in light of all that, we should live in a certain way in anticipation of the return of Christ. So in verse 11 to 13, what Peter does, he rightly anticipates the temptation that I think we have to lose sight of the ultimate purpose of our salvation. We have this temptation as believers to to fail to realize that God has saved us, not that we can just sit back, throw our feet up, and just coast down the river of life in an inner tube. He saved us that we might live for His glory, that we might be holy as He is holy, that we might pursue Him and pursue godliness. That's why we are saved, that we would bring glory and honor to God. Look at verse 11. That verse 11, we meditate on that before the sermon. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since this is going to occur, since the Lord is going to return, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Holiness is the understanding of being set apart for God. It's to be consecrated. It's to seek purity, to live an obedient life, a holy life for His glory. Godliness is the idea of us being oriented toward God. It's living in a way that's directed toward God, that is mindful of God, that's seeking to honor Him, that's seeking to serve Him, seeking to grow in Him. And Peter writes here, he says, what lives ought you to have what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness it's a call to christian ethics it's a call for us to pursue holiness as we wait for the day of the lord in which the new heavens and new earth are ushered in but he says there in verses 12 and 13 we talked about in revelation 21 what we see here is our eschatology, our view of the end time, is, should be inseparable from our ethics. Eschatology and ethics should be bound together, held together. That our understanding of what will occur calls us to live in a particular way for the glory of God. As Christians, brothers and sisters, we are not called to mindlessly enjoy the pleasures of the world. That we would just mindlessly kick back and float down and coast in life, not worried about pursuing holiness. We do not earn salvation by pursuing holiness, but as a result of our salvation, we long to live holy lives. And so here's a question. Does holiness and godliness characterize your life? Does it characterize my life? Holiness and godliness. Listen, I think at this point, we just need to be kind of gut-level honest with ourselves about our struggle. We need to be honest with the, the fact that we can sometimes just presume upon the grace of God and take heaven for granted. We can 
be really honest with the fact that sometimes when we realize our eternity is settled, it can be tempting just to, just to live only for this world, live only for today, just to get captivated by the things around us. And the question I asked and jotted down this, this week as I was just meditating on this verse was, when did, we conv- become, when did we become convinced that an apathetic, Sunday-only, convenience-based Christianity brings glory to God? When did that become a, something that we said, yep, that's it. That's all we need to be. I mean, if we just show up on a Sunday morning, hey, there you go. It's all God, all God calls me to do. When did we become convinced of that? How, how is it that we've bought into the lie that the idea of athletic success and academic domination is more important than discipling our children? How is it that we've become experts in random internet knowledge, authorities in the history and statistics of our favorite sports teams, and we're walking catalogs and librarians of meaningless memes and funny videos, yet we can't seem to find a little time to study the Word of God? How does that happen? How is it that those who ought to live lives of holiness and godliness know more about ridiculous memes than we do about the Word of God that saved us? Does it make sense? Why is it that we don't have a deep longing for holiness? Why is it we aren't hungering for the Word of God? Why are we not hungering for righteousness? Could it be that the candy of worldliness has stolen our appetite for holiness? Could it be that that the things in life have so distracted us that our gaze is set more upon them than upon the glories of heaven? I I want to just remind you quickly God's call to holiness in Scripture. I'll just remind you that God has called us very clearly to pursue holiness and godliness. I mean, think about Leviticus. Leviticus is a book committed to helping us learn to live holy lives for God. In Leviticus 11.44, we read, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus 19.2, we hear, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For the Lord God is holy. In Leviticus 27, we hear again, Consecrate yourself, set yourself apart, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. In Romans 12, 1, Paul calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? They are to be holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 4, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, not so that we could kick back and relax and be consumed by worldliness. No, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, we read that God has not called us for impurity. He's called us in holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 4, we read that this is the will of God, your sanctification your growth in holiness, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. In 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and those in high positions. Why? 
Why would we pray for those who lead our country? Why would we pray for all the people? He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for those people. Why? That you might live a godly life, not so you can sit back and forget it. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. While bodily discipline is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness, it is godliness with contentment that is of great gain. In 2 Timothy 3, 5, the ungodly in the last day are described as those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And you know what Paul says? Avoid such people. Avoid them. Hebrews 12, 14, we're exhorted, we're encouraged, we're, we're called to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're to strive for holiness. In 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, Peter draws back on Leviticus and he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In 2 Peter 1, 5 to 8, the beginning of the book we're reading, he calls the people to Christian virtue. And to that Christian virtue, he says to add godliness to it. Don't just be virtuous, but be godly. Jude warns in, chapter, in verse 4 of Jude, he says, For certain people crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear. Believers, we should be longing for holiness. We should be pursuing holiness. This is not legalism. This is not something where we're trying to earn our salvation or we're trying to check off the boxes to look religious. No, this is the overflow of a life that's been transformed by the grace of God and longs to bring glory to Him, to exalt Him, that the love of God has come and has moved in our lives in such a magnificent way that our desire is to live for Him. Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a sermon called Heaven, a World of Love and, in which he describes the love of God that is there present in heaven, that God is love, and, and he just talks and he really fleshes this out. I want you to hear part of that sermon. Listen to what he says. Talking about believers who have been granted the seal, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, that we know, as we talked about last week, we know the certainty of eternal life through Christ. Listen to how Edwards describes him. He says, They are those who, from the love that is in them, are in heart and life, in principle and practice, struggling after holiness. The holy love of God makes them long for holiness. It's a principle that thirst after growth, the great strife and struggle of the new man is after holiness. His heart struggles after it, for he has an interest in heaven, and therefore he struggles with that sin that would keep him from it. He's full of ardent desires and breathings and longings and strivings to be holy. And his hands struggle as well as his heart. He strives in his practice. His life is a life of sincere and earnest endeavor to be universally and increasingly holy. He feels he's not holy enough. Far from it. 
And he desires to be nearer perfection and more like those who are in heaven. And this is one reason why he longs to be in heaven. That he may be perfectly holy. Edwards isn't saying that the Christian is perfect. Edwards is simply saying that we should pursue holiness. And that we should long more and more and more for holiness. It reminds me of the, the, the kid, you know, the five-year-old kid. Have you ever played basketball against a five-year-old kid? I mean, hopefully, hopefully, adults, you won in that instance, right? But do you remember being that kid? You thought you were the stuff. I mean, you thought you couldn't be beat. Little did you know it was because when you shot, your dad or your neighbor kind of tapped the ball up so it would actually go in. And the older you get, the more aware you come, become of your deficiencies. The more aware you become of, wow, I'm not as good as I thought I was. I've got a lot to grow in that area. And you keep wanting to get better and better and better. And you, you get to the point where you want to get around other coaches that will make you better and other players that will make you better because you understand that you are not where you need to be as a player. You want to get better. I have learned that the older I get, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize where I am my shortcomings and sin. The more disappointing and ashamed I am of my own rebellion. I mean, knowing what I know and knowing who I know in Christ, that I was still transgressed against the one who died on the cross for my sins. That I would still rebel. The older I get, the more I understand my utter dependence on His grace. That I wholly need Him. I can't do it on my own. But I see this Increasing longing that I want to be more like Him. I want to be holy as He's holy. I want to grow in Christ. I want to live a godly life. I see my sin, but I see Christ and I see His grace is immeasurable. It's greater than all my sin. And thanks be to God that His work in me is sanctifying me and growing me to pursue Him and growing in grace and growing in Him. How do we do that? How do we do it? I want to give you this morning as we, I was going to say as we close, that would really trick you guys. We're not closing yet. As we transition to this part of the sermon, I want to give you five ways to pursue personal holiness in your life. Five ways. What does it look like? What does it look like to grow in personal holiness and grow in godliness? What can we do? You know, Paul talks about in in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and, and he talks about it in Colossians 2, the, the toil and the work and the labor he has. It's not, Christ, it's not him alone, but it's Christ in him, right? He talks about working out our salvation. So how do we do that? How do we pursue personal holiness? How do we grow in godliness? Here's five things. One, the first thing is to make use of God's provided means of grace. 
make use of God's provided means of grace. Now, what does that mean? It's not something we throw around all the time. Hey, are you making use of God's means of grace, right? You may not have said that ever. Means of grace simply refer to God's appointed instruments for communicating the realities, the benefits of redemption to his people. It's what he has appointed to to do this, to convey it, to communicate it. The the three classic primary means of grace are, are scripture, prayer, and participation in the ordinances. Scripture, prayer, and participation in in baptism, the Lord's Supper. But of all these, for the sake of today, we need to understand that Scripture is the primary means of grace that God has ordained. It's, It's that in which all the others find their basis. All the others are rooted in Scripture. To, to make this maybe more clear, uh, theologian, theologian Gerhard Hardis Voss said this. He explained, he said, we can think of the word as a means of grace without the sacraments. But it's impossible to think of the sacraments as a means of grace without the word. The sacraments depend on Scripture and the truth of Scripture speaks in and through them. That's why the Scripture is the primary means of grace. Everything is anchored in it and finds its meaning, validity in the truth of God's Word. Here's what we need to think about. If you're longing and you want to pursue holiness and pursue godliness, growth in holiness and godliness will not happen if you neglect the intake of God's Word. It's not going to happen. You don't just go, you know what, I'm going to hear a sermon Sunday morning and I'm never going to crack open the Word of God and I'm going to just grow like a weed in holiness. God has ordained His Word as that which sanctifies us. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we read that it is the inspired Word of God that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. If you want to grow in godliness, if you want to pursue holiness, you need to be in the Word. The second, second thing I would say is we need to be those who practice spiritual discipline. Be those who practice spiritual discipline. In 1 Timothy 4, 7-8, we read it earlier, it says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And listen to what he says. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Charles Spurgeon pointed out that, that godliness is the only thing that we are told that holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. So what a glorious thing it is to train yourself for godliness. Now we understand this, don't we? We understand this concept. We understand and we apply this idea of training and discipline to all sorts of areas of our lives. You understand that, that getting stronger happens by going to the gym. You understand that, that being able to, to run a marathon happens by having a training plan and you run daily to get ready for that marathon. You understand that playing beautifully on the piano or the violin happens through hours of training, practice, discipline. You understand that. We understand that. So the question is, do we likewise train ourselves for godliness? Do we train ourselves for the purpose of godliness? Now, I want to point out what he says in verse 7 of First Timothy 4. You don't have to flip there, but you can just listen. He says, rather train yourself for godliness. 
Train yourself for godliness. Do you see the, the weight of responsibility there? We are to discipline ourselves. We are to be the ones who take initiative. Too many Christians just put all the responsibility of spiritual growth on everyone but themselves. Well, I'm not growing because of my preacher. I'm not growing because of my Sunday school teacher. I cannot grow in because of my parents. Listen, Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Does God give those in the church? Does he give pastors to the church as a, a gift for equipping of saints and building up and, and teaching? Yes, absolutely. Does he give those of you in here that are gifted as teachers to teach small groups, to teach the word? Absolutely. But here we're called to train ourselves, to discipline ourselves for godliness. We have to take some personal responsibility to this and remember the weight of godliness, that it has value in all things, in all things. So, sit under or use God's prescribed means of grace. Second, practice spiritual discipline. Third is put sin to death. Put sin to death. In Colossians 3, we, we talked about Colossians 3 a great deal in this series, 3, 1 to 4, where, where we're called to seek the things that are above, right? To set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Well, right after that passage where Paul directs us to look above, in verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Put to death that which is sinful. And he, he lists out sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You once walked in them, you and you were living in them, but now you must put them away, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, don't lie to one another. Put off the old self. Kill it. Put it to death. Listen, we should see the progression that Paul makes here. That the, the believer who has his mind set on things above is going to pursue holiness in such a way that he's going to seek to put to death sin in his life. He's going to wage war on sin in his life. What we need to understand is that the believer who is growing in holiness and godliness is actively engaged in waging war against sin in his own life. In his own life. Don't get so caught up in calling out the sins of culture that you never look in the mirror. Don't get so caught up in, in seeing what everybody else is doing and saying that's sinful and that's heinous and that's an abomination that you don't wake up and look in the mirror of God's Word and say, God, search my heart and know me and see if there's any ungodly way, sinful, unrighteous, unholy way in me. God, reveal my own heart. Reveal my own heart. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The choice is yours. Scripture calls us to put it to death. We're to be those who ought to be pursuing holiness and godliness. But the question is, are you feeding sin and temptation in your own life? Are, are, are you constantly putting it before yourself? Are, are you doing things and bringing things into your life that's just fanning the flames of sinful desires in your own life? Or are you seeking to put it aside? Are you casting it aside? Are you seeking to remove temptation? Are you fleeing from temptation? Are you pursuing what is godly and putting it in front of you? Are you seeking to flame godly desires and longings that God has given you as a believer? 
Put sin to death. Number four, we need to prize meaningful fellowship, fellowship with God's people. Prize meaningful fellowship with God's people. We cannot undervalue the benefit and the health of gathering with God's people. People who should be pursuing holiness just as we are that would come alongside us. The writer of Hebrews has much to say about this. Just two things in Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. We read the writer saying, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How can we exhort one another if we're never with one another? Don't undervalue gathering with God's people. In Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, he says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. It's a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, all the more, he says, is what? As you see the day approaching. All the more, gather together. All the more, spur one another on. All the more, build one another up in Christ. See, on a, on a macro level, on a big level, we have to come together and we gather to encourage one another by our presence. I mean, this morning, in singing and praising and worshiping God, I just paused just for a moment in one verse and just listened to my church family saying, on that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun. Oh, my eyes were just filled with tears to think about all of you singing on that day. And on that day, we will sing together, we'll rejoice together in Christ. Oh, what a blessing that is. It encouraged my soul this morning to hear that. That's a macro level that we would gather and encourage one another, spur one another on. This kind of two-way impact on personal holiness. So on a macro level, don't buy the lie. We've talked about this before. Don't buy the lie that, you know what, if I miss on a Sunday, it's just me that misses out. It's just me. No, those that you don't talk to and that you don't spur on and you don't encourage and you don't build up, they're missing out because you're not here. If I just stay in bed one morning, It's not just me that misses out, but those around me miss out. But on a micro level, we think about fellowshipping with God's people. That's macro. That's a big picture in the community of believers. On a micro level, we need to have believers in our lives who hold us accountable to pursue holiness and godliness. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Who asks you the hard questions in life? Who comes alongside you and spurs you on to godliness? Who checks in on you? Who confronts you? Who rebukes you? Who calls you and says, listen, brother, what you said was sinful in the way you said it. It was unthoughtful. It was hurtful. Who calls you to account? Who walks with you to come alongside you with those people? We need to be fellowshipping with believers to hold us accountable in our pursuit of holiness. The final thing I would say this morning in pursuing holiness and godliness is to set your mind to think upon godly things. Set your mind to think upon godly things. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, 
anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What did Paul write in Colossians 3, 2? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Remember Jesus, the greatest commandment, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, 37. Love the Lord your God. What was the final one? With all of your mind. Set your mind upon godly things. It sometimes just leaves me shaking my head hearing the things that professing Christians are filling their minds with. It just causes me to... Why? Why, why would I subject myself to those shows? Oh, you've got to check this. We've been streaming this. We've been binging it. Why? Something that would be absolutely contrary to holiness and godliness. How, how, can, we, how can we set our mind on things above? When the majority of the time that we are setting our minds on something is spent on social media, looking at what other people are posting comparing ourselves to them and judging them in comparison to us. Is that really stirring our minds up towards holy thoughts? Is it really spurring us on to godliness? Is it readying us for that day when we see Christ Shining brighter than the sun. Does it cause you to set your mind on things above? As we walk through this series and the end goal as I shared with you when we began. Is that we would consider heaven. And my desire is not that it would just be some cerebral intellectual exercise but that in our consideration of heaven and the glory that awaits that it would affect the way we live today that the worldliness that is so alluring and tempting in my life and your life would be cast aside and that we would daily have a greater longing for Christ to live for him his glory and pursue holiness. So I would just ask you as we close to consider your own life this morning. Christian, are you pursuing holiness? Are you orienting yourself towards God and pursuing godliness? Perhaps Maybe your response is, which one of those five areas do I need to kind of dig down on? Really focus on? Draw near to God in? Unbeliever, the question for you would be, why are you presuming upon the patience of God? Paul said in Romans that the patience of God is that we might repent. Would you repent 
before the holy God. Trust Christ today. And know his presence, the surety of eternal life through Christ. And joyfully serve him for his glory, pursuing holiness and godliness in your life from this day forward. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for glory, for heaven. We thank you for revealing to us that you will return. And that Christ that day will be a day and we may not necessarily be expecting it, Lord. It will come like a thief in the night. So God, my prayer first of all this morning as we bring our worship to a close that we would be prepared that friends in here today who do not know you, they would turn to you in faith today. Would you please, God, do a great work in their lives? And God, for those of us in here who are believers, God, may we live lives of holiness and godliness for your glory. And for brothers and sisters in here who just are, are coasting, they're just floating down, wrapped up in worldliness, materialism, and lazily floating down the river of life, God, I pray that you'd work in them a deep longing and desire for holiness and godliness. And God, as we do that, would you remind us of your grace and your forgiveness as we pursue holiness, God, and we fail and we struggle we toil with sin, God, would you please remind us of your grace and forgiveness and would you please sanctify us by your word and grow us in your truth. God, that's our prayer this morning. In the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to stand this morning as we close our time of worship with Be Thou My Vision. Perhaps you need to just use this time to respond in prayer and seeking God to do a great work in your life. Maybe it's responding in faith. You want to talk to me down front or you can talk to us out, out in the, the uh, foyer about trusting Christ and following Christ. We'd love to talk to you about that. Let's sing. Let's pray this prayer to God. Be thou my vision.